Good morning, Three Rivers. And just a quick uh, little little thing for you. Um, if you don't have Facebook or anything like that, any posts that I particularly make on the Facebook stuff, pointing you to blogs and stuff, um, it's on that TR Central tab. If you scroll halfway down, you'll see any net videos I post, Facebook Lives that we do on like first Sundays. And there's a ton of, I posted every day this week, something Eastery, right? And so if you didn't get that and you didn't know that was available, just know you can go down there, TR Central. And if you don't do the Facebook, you can see everything that I post there for you, okay? So just want you to have that little public service announcement. And so if you would join me in prayer, Prayer, and then uh, we're gonna we're gonna get after our text this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for the glory of of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross. And as Paul said in Galatians six fourteen, we boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, because by that cross you have taken upon yourself the curse, and you've dispensed to all those who believe mercy and grace. So that all will ever receive His love. And so we boast in the cross this morning. We thank You for that. And Lord, we pray by the work of the Holy Spirit now, You will take Your Word, make it a lamp for our feet, light for our path. Teach us and instruct us. Remind us of all that You've said. Open hearts, open eyes, move to righteousness. Accomplish all the work of Your kingdom. We ask You to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Easter Sunday, April 1st. 2018, today, as we look at this beautiful work of Christ on the cross, we're going to really, really hone in on a result of the work of the resurrection, and that work is the work of substitution. The reality is, Jesus is alive. That's a historical fact, but it's also a reality that those of us in Christ, we, we taste it, we experience it, it is reality. The resurrection of Jesus is, is, this is huge, it's the inauguration, it's the beginning, it's the coming out party of God doing the work of making all things new, restoring from Genesis 3, 1 to 7. The resurrection is the climactic event that completes, that completes the glorious work of substitution. That being Jesus in our place, for our sin, giving to us all of the glories of righteousness. And Him taking all the curse of sin. The resurrection completes that work. Without the resurrection, we're still in sin. We still have the curse of Genesis 3, 1-7 to on us. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at that work of substitution from Genesis chapter 3. And this is going to be important. So why not, why not just open Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and, and go over the resurrection from there? Well, the reason is because as we've been teaching you, the whole Bible is Christian Scripture. And the reality is, as you're seeing, as we teach through the book of Genesis, is that Genesis preaches the gospel same as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John does. And so what we want to do is not just remind you of the resurrection and teach you about the resurrection and the glorious results of the resurrection. We want to remind you about the resurrection from the text of Scripture that the New Testament authors are preaching from. Because we want you to go home and we want you to study those passages too. So we don't, don't only want you to hear and learn and be encouraged. We want you to go home and be able to feed yourself too. 
So as you open the scriptures, you're equipped to read and study as well. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 21, show us some beautiful things. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. This is after the rebellion against the Lord. Sin against Him by disbelieving, by not trusting, by buying lies that He is not good and holding out on them. When they disobeyed, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins. And clothed them. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 and 21 shows for us this beautiful pattern that God is going to establish all through the Old Testament. And culminate in the cross and the resurrection of substitution. That God is going to do a substitutionary work on behalf of his people in order to pay for their sin. So what are a few things we learn here in Genesis 3, 7, and 21? I'll hit these three things very quickly. The first thing we learn here is that man's effort to cover over his own shame is never sufficient. Never enough. So... They rebel against God and all of a sudden they recognize because of the curse of sin that there's shame, there's something wrong, and it's my fault. And they begin to make an attempt to cover themselves. We do the same thing. We're good at covering up. We're good at hiding. We're good at covering up our sin. Why? Because that's part of what the curse brought on us. is the recognition that something's wrong and the self-identity that this is bad and we try to cover it up. But we see... That we begin to try to cover up our sin, but we also see that it's never enough. We can't cover our sin. It's impossible. So what do we see next? We see in verse 21 that God now substitutes the innocent for the guilty by death in order to cover the guilty with the innocence of the innocent and put the guilt on the innocent. Verse 21. God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What did the creature do? Nothing. The creature was innocent. The creature did absolutely nothing to deserve death. But what does God do? God takes man's pathetic effort of fig leaves and he substitutes for those fig leaves skins of animals. How did those animals get skinned? God himself took their lives. And he took the innocent animals and he took their lives and he put their skins on our parents to cover their shame. To show your effort's not enough, but because I'm good and gracious and kind, I will cover your sin for you with the death of the innocent. I will substitute for you innocence in the place of your guilt. And this is huge, number three. In substitution, and this is massive, I want you, I want you to tune in and grab this. In substitution... God uses the curse, in this case death, to defeat the curse, death, for His people. God uses the curse to defeat the curse. Now this is huge. So why does God use the curse to defeat the curse? And these notes are available for you on the blog, mitchcholly.com, and you can see these. These are there for you. And I want you to get this. I want to ask this question now. Why would God use the curse... To defeat the curse? It's a good question. Let me give you just two reasons, okay? Why would God use the curse to defeat the curse? Well, reason number one. 
God shows His power over sin when He uses sin's effects to defeat sin. You see, the reality is God gives Satan no quarter. God gives Satan no room. And in order to give him no quarter and give him no room, God takes the effects of sin, death, and He uses those effects to defeat sin, thereby putting on display that there's nothing that can stop the work of the Lord. Not even the effects of the curse. He's not subject to them. He is the Almighty Creator King of the universe, and He can defeat the curse with the curse. This is huge. The second thing I want you to see, and this will get really clear right here with a perfect example that God put for us in the Scriptures. God redeems His name and His reputation as the one who is true when He defeats sin with sin's effects. Because you see, in Genesis 3, 1-7, to what has happened? God has had His truthfulness challenged. He's had His goodness challenged. And our parents bought the lie that He's holding out. He's not good. And they rebelled and disobeyed. And God's reputation took a hit. His name took a hit. And so, in defeating the curse with the curse, God redeems His name and His reputation. God sets out to glorify His name and recapture His honor as the highest name above all names when He defeats sin with sin. And Scripture gives us a type or a prefigure pointing us to God's work in defeating the curse with the curse through one of my absolute favorite people in the Bible, Benaiah, who gained a name and a reputation by defeating the enemy. Benaiah shows up for us in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 20 and 21. Benaiah is one of David's mighty men. And Benaiah gained a name and a reputation as being one who was mighty and strong and powerful. How did he do this? I'm not going to take time to read the passage. You can go read it. It's there for you in the notes. But Benaiah happens upon an Egyptian. And it's interesting. It says that he's a handsome Egyptian and he has a spear. And Benaiah takes the spear from the Egyptian and kills the Egyptian with his own spear. And if you're a dude in your room, you're going, yes, that is my hero. Right there. They should do a superhero marvel on Benaiah. He takes the Egyptian's own weapon and he kills him with his own weapon. Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, is a type pointing us to God's work in Jesus. He shows us in winning an honorable name as one of David's mighty men by killing an enemy with his own weapon how Jesus will conquer Satan with Satan's own weapon of death. Jesus uses death to defeat death and wins the name of honor that is above all names. So that the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth, will bow and confess that He is Christ to the glory of God the Father. So God regains His reputation and His name when He takes the effects of sin and defeats them with their own spear. It's beautiful. So why does God do that? To show He's mighty and sovereign over sin. And to regain his honor and his reputation as the one who is true, the one who is right. Well, where else can we see this design of substitution in Scripture? Now, what I've done for you in the notes is I've given you four examples. And this is four of many. Just giving you four. And guess what? We're not going to do all four. We're just going to do one. And here's the reason. Because not only do I want to show you this work of substitution as a result of the resurrection... I want you to be able to go home and open your Bibles and read and do it too. Because here's what's at stake. 
Not just that you come and get a resurrection message and feel all good. But that you walk out these doors on mission. Able to open your Bible if you're a Christian. And show this glorious good news from the text of Scripture. Because the Bible teaches us this message of God's substitution work. That is completed with the cross and resurrection of Jesus. This good news is powerful. It's powerful. It's able to take us from death to life. It overcomes the effects of sin. It overcomes the curse. And so it's not just on pastors or ministry type people or anybody like that. It's on all of us to preach this message. So I want you to be equipped to go away and open your Bible and share this good news with people outside these walls. Okay? So I'm just going to give you one. And we're going to do number three on the list if you're looking at the notes. The reason we're going to do number three is because our students at Disciple Now, D-Now, just whatever weekend they just were there, I think it was last weekend, this example was shared for them, and I want to share it with you because it's one of my favorites. And it comes to us from John chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. And you probably recognize, if you're familiar with the Bible in some degree, that that verse 16 may be a famous Bible verse. Because if you grew up like me in the 70s and 80s on Sundays in football, right? Somebody scores, or particularly when the extra point is kicked or field goes kicked, somebody standing in the end zone or up in the stands holding a what? John 3.16 sign. What we don't often do is read verse 9 through 15. And I want to do that for you. And I want to show you how in John 3, 9 to 16, we get this beautiful picture of substitution. Because Jesus is preaching from Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. We often have this idea when we come to our Bibles... That the New Testament authors are just kind of doing their own thing. And we make the mistake of saying that the God of the New Testament seems to be nicer than the God of the Old Testament. And we fail to realize that the New Testament authors are writing, preaching from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the scripture that they're quoting from and interpreting for us. And Jesus, being the author of the Bible himself, the eternal God, creator of all things, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who inspires scripture, right? Because here's a little Bible thing for you. The Bible has one author, God, and many scribes. The inspiration of scripture is huge for us. This isn't just a merely human book. It's written by humans, but authored by God. And Jesus here, being that God, is preaching from Numbers chapter 21. Yes, Jesus preached from Numbers. When's the last sermon you heard out of the book of Numbers? Well, you're going to hear one because Jesus is preaching it to you right here. And then you're going to say, why don't you preach like Jesus did 10 minutes and let me go? I can't answer that question. Look at the Bible. Here we go. John 3, verse 9 through 16. This is after. This is Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Jewish people. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Verse 16 is the purpose clause, which is why it begins with four. 
Here's why Jesus is doing this as preached from Numbers 21, 4-9. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. So, what is Jesus saying when He says, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up? That's, that's interesting, right? If you go read Numbers chapter 21, verse 4-9, to there's an interesting scenario that's taking place. The people who've been led captive out of Egyptian slavery, and these people who've been under the influence of demonic gods, and Moses is going to identify these deities as having their source in the demonic later, He's writing to them, which is one of the reasons next week when we come back to Genesis 3, 8-24, to this whole image of the serpent is key. Right? Because even Pharaoh had that serpent on his headgear. Well, Moses is wanting the people to know that the source of this conflict is none other than Satan. And the source of this conflict and the source of these things that I've brought you out of are demonic. And so here's what happens. They've come out. God's released them. He's brought them out and released them and is taking them to his special place. And they start complaining because it's a desert and there's no water. And God's feeding them, but they don't like what God's feeding them. So they complain, this food is worthless and there's no water. Take us back to Egypt. What does God do? God sends very poisonous snakes in among them and they start biting people and people start dying. And the people recognize, okay, we're wrong. We're wrong. Sorry. Get rid of the snakes. And does God just get rid of the snakes? No. He tells Moses, Moses, make an image of one of those snakes. And sit it up on a pole. And so that if anybody is bitten, they can come and look up on the pole, see the image of the snake, and live. Well, that sounds really strange until Jesus comes and preaches this passage to us. And says... Just like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so likewise the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that whoever, what? Verse 15, believes in Him may have eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's how He teaches us about this passage in Numbers 21. The curse, the snake, becomes the means by which God delivers the people from the curse. And Jesus, when he comes and preaches this passage to Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you know this story because you're a good Jew. That's me. Just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness and people looked on it and were healed, the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that those who believe in Him may also be saved. What's Jesus saying? Just like God defeated the curse with the curse, Nicodemus, I must become a curse. I must become the one that is lifted up and becomes the object of wrath and becomes the object of hate and scorn so that when people look to me, they will get released from the curse. What is Jesus saying? That I will defeat the curse of sin by becoming the curse myself. Why? Verse 16, because God loves. Because God so loved the world. Because the only way you can be released is the death of the innocent in the place of the guilty. And I have come to fulfill that mission. So Nicodemus, I will be lifted up. I will become the curse in your place for your sin. So that if you look to me, I will release you from the curse and take all of your guilt, Nicodemus. Because God loves you. And you know what's interesting? 
We sing a song about this. Have you ever thought about the lyrics? Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Right? You know the song? We sing it every now and then. Have you ever thought about trampling over death by death? Christian songwriters don't just make stuff up. Good ones anyway. They're communicating this reality that God has defeated the curse of sin with the curse of sin. He took death and beat death with its own spear. So that He is shown to be mighty. And He regains His name and His favor and His reputation as being the one who is true. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see that Jesus' teaching in John 3, 9 through 16 is that He must be substituted in the place of sinners. He kills death by death, but not our death, His death. Here's how Paul will say it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Here's how Paul will preach this work of substitution. For our sake, whose sake? Our sake, those who are in Christ. For the sake of the world. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. In other words, for the sake of sinners, God the Father made Jesus Christ the Son to be sin. The language is key. Not just take on sin. Be sin. There's a difference between doing and being. Do you know that? There's a difference between doing and being. Jesus didn't just take on sin, He became sin. This work of substitution is key. If Jesus just took on sin, maybe you can, maybe, you know, God, you can do a little something different there, bypass this thing with Jesus and make it not so nasty. But the reality is God made Him who knew no sin, He was perfect and innocent, to be sin. Meaning, That when Jesus hung on the cross, the Father was placing on Him, in Him, causing Him to be and become your sin and mine. Jesus didn't just take my sin, He became the curse. Which is why Paul will teach in Galatians chapter 3, from the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Which is one of the passages I gave you to go study. He became sin. Every murderer, every rapist, Jesus became guilty. And the Father put that on Him. He took it on and He became sin. Verse 21, comma, so that. Here's why. In Him, if you're in Christ, if you repent and believe the good news, we might become Not doing, but being, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, there's a little piece of good news for you. That's why we call it gospel. It's good news. That if you come to Christ and believe upon Him, if you look up to Him, and you put your trust in Him, He has effectively taken all of your guilt, and He has effectively transferred to you righteousness. Not just right deeds, but He makes you right. So that there is therefore, as Paul will say in Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There can't be. Because the perfect Son of God 
has dispensed in this substitutionary work, Jesus Christ, in your place for your sin, his righteousness to you. And now this changes everything. I don't want to spend too much time here because i got a point of application dealing with it just a tad. It, it ceases to become an issue of doing and it becomes an issue of being, your identity on how you live. There's a fine line between doing righteous things and doing righteous things because I'm internally righteous. If you just do right stuff, you'll get tired of doing right stuff because you get sick of it. There's no benefit in this for me. Really? It just seems to get harder. That goes away. Jesus calls that rocky soil and thorny soil. When it gets hard, eh, or things crowded out, I got more stuff to do. I don't need that. I'll come back to that later. Hard soil, just don't even take root. But when you are, when it's who you are, you just do it. And you don't get tired of it. You just do it. You're aware of your breathing. Now, if you got asthma, you're aware of your breathing. So don't give me all the illustrations. All illustrations break down. So don't give me, well, I've got asthma. I always know what I'm breathing. Don't, don't be smart, okay? Just Are you just aware of your breathing all the time? No. It just kind of happens. Sometimes you're just engaged in something. Like if I'm watching a sporting event, I'm not thinking about my breathing. I'm not intentionally breathing deep. I'm not doing that. Just breathe, right? Why? Because God made you with lungs. And your survival depends on it. And you just breathe. Why? Because that's what you are. You're a mammal. It's got lungs and you breathe air. Fish don't have to think about their gills, right? They just are in the water and water passes over them and they take the oxygen out and survive. Why? Because that's who and what they are. It's who, what we are. When you're in Christ, righteousness happens because that's what you are. Because God has effectively taken the righteousness of Jesus and made you that. Substitution. That's the result of the cross and the resurrection. So, here's where the rubber's going to meet the road for us this morning. That's clear. That's a simple message. The gospel is not complex. It's written in the Bible, and great authors like Lewis and Tolkien wrote fantasy and allegory for children based on this stuff. It's not complex. It's simple. But it's powerful and effective. So the question for us isn't, what is it? The question is, now, what am I supposed to do with it? What do I do with this? How do I appropriate this? I gave you five points this morning. Number one, because Jesus has been substituted for you, we want to invite you to receive Jesus by faith and repentance. If, if, if this gospel message is new to you, or if it's not new but somehow landed different today, we want to invite you to receive the Lord Jesus by faith and repentance. There will be some pastors in the back at the end. If you want to come talk to us, you can. You don't have to do that, but we invite you to come do that. Receive the Lord Jesus and let somebody know. Let us know so we can help you begin to walk with the Lord and disciple you into the faith. Number two, and, and here's really where my heart is and one of the reasons we came back to Roman Floyd County. We're 15 years old. And we started this church 15 years ago. I'm a Roman Floyd County and Pepperell High School graduate, shorter university graduate. Yeah, so I have some Pepperell people. Yeah, touchdown. Yes, thank God. And so we went to Texas and we came and we planted out of Northwood Church. We planted back here. And, 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 and number two is the reason why. Number two is the reason why. And let's be real honest with you. This makes me nervous to say this. Because I know how I would have received it when I was this. I was 20 years old before I ever heard this, this kind of stuff. So let me just lay it on you. 
Because Jesus has been substituted for you. I want to invite you to leave cultural Christianity for the real thing. I want you to leave, I invite you to leave cultural Christianity for the real thing. I was just looking over some statistics. We just did a demographic survey of, of the radius in which people from Three Rivers drive to come here. So it's anywhere from X amount of miles out to really close by. So we did a demographic survey. And these numbers are fascinating because what we discover in that demographic survey is in this radius of where people come from to our church, there's roughly 129,000 people. And according to the demographics... 45 to 46% of those people identify, self-identify as being deeply engaged in their faith. Now, I don't, I didn't run the numbers on what 45% of 129,000 is. Those are just weird numbers and I don't do math, okay? So, right? Almost 50% of 100 would be like, you know, if it's 45 and there are 100,000, it'd be 45%, right? So I can't do 129 by 45, so y'all figured that out. But here's what's beautiful. Here's what's amazing. If you do church attendance in that radius, you get closer to 15%. Now, here's where interpreting data becomes fun. If 45% are identifying as deeply engaged, but the church attendance is closer to 15 to 20, that means they don't recognize the difference between deeply engaged and not engaged at all. They think they're engaged. That was me. It was me that I was identifying as Christian when there was no Christian behavior coming out of me. But I'm a Christian. And here's what's hard about being in Rome. Here's what's hard about being in Rome. You can attract the cultural Christian with cool stuff until something cooler comes along and they go there. Because it's not about Jesus, it's about the product received. It's not about giving my life away. The 59 one another's of the New Testament are irrelevant. I need something and you got a better of it. So I'm going to come to you. It's hard to identify cultural Christianity. Because the language has been meshed with non-Christian behavior. And before the gospel takes effect, there's a lot of untangling that often has to happen. I was talking with a pastor friend in town the other day. He has the same challenge. He runs into people who still thinks Jerry Vines is the pastor at West Rome. But they're Christian. Jerry Vines has been pastoring in Rome for a long time. Long time. But they're Christian. Let me just give you a few things here. Because here's what Jesus didn't die and rise and substitute in our place for our sin. To make us nominal. To follow Jesus is to follow in His footsteps. To obey Him. To hear Him. To do what He said. And trust Him for the outcome. A radical faith. A faith that's deep and rich. Crazy. Let's just give you some indicators. Cultural Christianity really looks like 2 Timothy 3.5 in which Paul speaks to Timothy about these times that they were entering into when he wrote to Timothy that we are also in now. He says... Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he added this. This is not the end of what Paul told Timothy. He said, avoid such people. That's cultural Christianity. There is the appearance of godliness, but there's no life flowing through it. It's just stuff. 
some indicators. If you can separate your national identity, if you can't separate your national identity from the kingdom of God, you might be a cultural Christian. Let that one sink. Because this is what Israel ran into. Rome, Georgia is not that far off of Israel when the prophets spoke to them like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Habakkuk. We're not that far off from that. We're not that far off. I'm reading a book on the Templars. Fascinating. And we, some people are like, oh, the Templars, awesome. Not so awesome. These guys confused their national identity with the kingdom of God and slaughtered people not of the Christian faith by the thousands in the name of Jesus. We're still paying for that today, by the way, in that part of the world. There's another indicator of cultural Christianity. If your consumption of Christianity and Christian things has no clear oversight, covering, accountability to mission, to mission, you may be a cultural Christian expressing constitutional liberty in the place of biblical constraint. Don't confuse constitutional liberty with biblical constraint. By the way, this is what makes me nervous. They like to kill the prophets who said this to them back in the day. Don't throw rocks. Indicator of cultural Christianity. If you wear Christianity symbols without applying the implications on church attendance, commitment to disciple-making, practical care for others before oneself, you might be a cultural Christian. If you've got a big cross tattooed on your back, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but you're not making disciples out of anybody, There's no, you had not made a disciple in 20 years, never read through your Bible, that doesn't count a lot, it's just ink. It's just think. If we wear Christianity symbols, if we consume the symbols of Christianity without living them out, we may be a cultural Christian. This was going to hurt. It's going to sting a tad. Because here's the deal. Here's the likely reality. In this room today, we're a bunch of self-identifying Christians. And hopefully that has really taken root and transformed our lives. But often we can't separate our national identity from the kingdom of God. And we struggle with that. Our voting record indicates it. In the evangelical church. But Jesus died to release us from this. And make us citizens of his kingdom. If I can't apply the gospel truth. Listen, this is huge. If I, if I can apply the gospel truth of didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. We would all agree. I didn't earn my salvation. I don't deserve it, right? Amen. If I can apply that to my own salvation, but then won't take that gospel truth and apply it to the practical application of repairing poverty, we might be cultural Christians. Because what do we do? I didn't pay for it, I didn't earn it, but Jesus gave it to me freely and we receive it, right? But when it comes to dealing with poverty, they didn't pay for it, they didn't earn it, go get a job. That's not Christian. It's just not. Jesus died in our place for our sin to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Make us His sons and daughters. Make us righteous so that He begins to work that out. Not just in our going to heaven, but in how we live here and now. 
You notice I said at the very beginning that the resurrection was the inauguration of the work of making all things new. Salvation isn't just about heaven. Salvation is also now all things have been put under the feet of Jesus. And He is now practically working through His church to bring all things under His rule. Including governments, including nature. All things are being redeemed and brought under the rule of Christ. That's what the resurrection purchased. Not just heaven. Which has implications, Christian, on how we live today. So we can't just be cultural Christians. Let's be followers of Jesus. Jesus defies fallen logic. So you may hate me now, and you may want to throw a rock at me, and that's okay. But my hunch is that probably speaks to most of our hearts in this room. That was me. That was me. That's why we came back here and planted this kind of church. That's why we do what we do, how we do it. Number three, because Jesus has been substituted for you, live to be a living picture of the substitute work of Jesus. You see, the substitutionary work of Christ, again, isn't just to get us heaven. It is that we would go and in the way we live, we would live a life of substitution. It's easy to talk about when we talk about the global work we're engaged in, right? We go and we, we, we speak the good news, but we live this life. If we give this up in order that they might have life, and that in and of itself speaks something, there, there's a gospel proclamation in that, so that when we open our mouths and speak this message, which has to happen, there's a living picture that goes with it. But we often forget that that applies to here too. Local work is no different from global work. It's just different. If we're going to really engage in our town and make a difference, we have to become a living picture of the substitutionary work of Christ in which we are willing to give up the benefits of goodness to take on the difficulty of the curse in these dark corners of our town. So that we receive all the hardness and difficulty of working in something that nobody wants to work in while dispensing the message of life that brings them life. So that as Christians begin to engage in the public square and work in our domains of society to bring all things under the rule of Christ, not only is our message being spoken, but our lives are consistently matching up with the message. That Jesus substituted in your place for your sin and I'm willing to come and substitute in the place of this darkness so you can have the message of light. Which is why Christians in the church in general in Roman Floyd County doesn't do hard work. We just want to invite people to our services. We don't want to get down in the dirty corners of everything that's broken and begin to repair it because it's hard. It takes resources and time. But I want you to understand because Jesus has been substituted for you, you can live in being a living picture to substitute work of Jesus. Number four, because Jesus has been substituted for you, rest from the labor to earn God's favor. Rest from the labor to earn God's favor. Listen, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 told us, if you're in Christ, He's made you righteous. And we have this tendency because it's we want to put on fig leaves. We want to go back to fig leaves and not receive the cross. We want to start doing things to get God to like me. And what we fail to realize is in Christ, not only does He like you, He loves you. And He likes you. And He, in His sight, has counted you as right. Right. Which is why there's no condemnation. And so, stop trying to earn favor. That's all you're ever going to get. Which is why this produces thanksgiving in Christians. Because we look at our lives and go, I don't deserve thanksgiving. But he get, or I don't deserve goodness. 
and righteousness and favor from God. I deserve condemnation, but He gives me nothing but favor. And so we thank Him. There's lives of worship that are lived out. Because we don't have to earn it. It's a free gift by repentance and faith. So stop trying to earn God's favor. Just receive it. Which leads us to our last application. And this is huge. Because you notice that if I'm righteous, why do I not do righteous things? Right? We are righteous. We are counted as right. And we're never going to do anything but the love of God because of Christ. Then why do I keep doing stupid things? Well, it's because the Bible teaches us in, in this work of the substitutionary work of Christ. He gives us a new heart that desires to follow Him and obey Him. But we're left with the rest of our being broken. So that we have this contrary thing going on in us. We have a new heart that wants to obey the Lord. But we have every other part of us that doesn't want to obey the Lord. And there's this tension. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Right? You feel it. You know that tension. So here we go. Because Jesus has been substituted for you. God may bring. And, and listen. This is where you have to. This is, this is why you got to read your Bible. This is where you got to read your Bible. God may bring fatherly discipline to you. And discipline isn't punishment. Discipline is favor. Discipline is love. Parents don't discipline their children, don't love their children. And God teaches us this in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. That if you're not disciplined by the Lord, you're not a child. But if you receive fatherly discipline, it's because you're a son and daughter of God. So listen to this. This is key. Because Jesus has been substituted for you. God may bring fatherly discipline to you in order to make you more like Jesus. Because He counts you as completely holy... He's going to lovingly work to make you practically holy. And the final lesson will be our own death. Where God graciously uses the curse of death as our slave to usher us into life. So that He will use even death in us to defeat death in us. So I'm going to leave you with this thought. What if the one thing you wish would just go away? Is the one thing he is using to make you more like Jesus. <laughs> That's fatherly discipline. <laughs> That's fatherly discipline. And that is a byproduct of the cross and resurrection of Jesus in your place for your sin. So simply receive it. Just receive it. Enjoy it. Hear it and obey it. Grow up into more Christ likeness because he was substituted for you and rose to secure it. For your completion in Him. Let's pray with me and then we'll worship together. Father, we just ask right now in the name of Jesus that you would accomplish in this room right now with your people all the glorious effects of the good news of Jesus Christ and His cross and His resurrection and His work of substitution in our place for our sin. Lord, there's way, way, way too many to name. The Bible's full of the glories that await those who look to Jesus who's been lifted up. And so, Lord, I just ask that right now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would cause us, your people, to see and savor more of that good news. And that you would produce in us hearts of thanksgiving that would produce songs of praise to you. But Lord, I pray also that if there's a heart that hadn't been transformed, that, that you would work on transforming that right now, that you would take out a heart that don't want to believe and put in one that desires to believe. 
and bring about faith that they may look to Christ who's been lifted up and find that you loved. And as a result, they now see. So would you work that in them, that mysterious, beautiful work of how you pull that off? And I pray you put in them a desire to follow you, to obey you, to read your word, to be with your people. And God, teach us how to disciple them well. Now, Lord, be exalted, be glorified, be lifted high, we pray in Jesus' name.